0: number of times uh, in my life I'd been at a restaurant, and uh, when the check arrived, it had already been paid. Uh, somebody I knew was at the restaurant as well and uh, decided to gift me in that, and uh, a- I was able to thank them uh, most of those times, knowing who it was. Uh, a few weeks ago, my family was having lunch after church, and in- instead of the, the check, uh, the server gave me a note that said, your bill has already been paid and uh, I didn't know who did it. So if you're here, thank you very much. I'll let you know where I'm having lunch later today. <laughs> uh, just imagine a different scenario. Uh, what if you meet someone out in the commons uh, after the service and, uh, and they say, hey, I'd like to take your family out to lunch. Uh, my treat. And that Sounds good to you. You're you're on a tight budget, and uh, you're just headed home, maybe to make some sandwiches or scrape something together. And uh, uh, this guy names the restaurant, and you agree to meet there. And uh, uh, when you get there, your your host encourages your family to order whatever you want, and uh, you enjoy a nice meal. and then near the end, your host excuses himself for a moment and uh, uh, you're lingering there over a second or third cup of coffee and uh, time begins to go by. You wonder, uh, is this guy okay? Is everything all right? What's happened to him? And, and uh, then the bill arrives and there it sits on the table and you stare at it and wonder what to do. And, and so much time goes by, eventually you realize that uh, this guy is not coming back and uh, you are stuck picking up a check that... Uh, you can't really afford. And that's called dine and dash, by the way. Uh, Now, L.A. had a notorious dine and dasher, who was caught earlier this year? Uh, his name was Paul Gonzalez, and uh, he would set up dates with women and uh, enjoy a great meal at a at a nice restaurant, and then he would skip out on the bill and leave these uh, women with it. See, anybody can invite you out to eat uh, and say they'll pay the bill, but if they don't show up to pay for it, then uh, that that's a problem. Now, I say all that to to set up that two of the biggest events in the Christian year. Uh, we celebrate one uh, this week. Christmas, uh, and, and then Easter, and, and these two great events celebrate the first advent. Uh, that is the coming of Jesus into our world, the Christ. His, his arrival, his death and, and burial and resurrection. But if that's where it ends, then Jesus has done the ultimate dine and dash. If that's where it ends, then we have missed out. Uh, As we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we must also look for the return of the Christ, the second advent. The arrival of Jesus into this world at Bethlehem loses all meaning if he does not return and settle the bill. At Christmas, we celebrate the entrance of the eternal Son of God into human history, where he took on flesh to dwell among us, became man in order to destroy the devil's work and to save his people from their sin. He accomplished this by becoming the perfect sacrifice on the cross, rising from the grave three days later, and ascending to heaven to prepare a place for us. That was all accomplished in the first advent. But his saving work will only be completed when he returns in glory. Now, the passage of scripture that we look at this morning from Titus chapter 2 is, is one on which I have never preached before, my knowledge. I I did discover that the great Martin Luther uh, preached this very passage on Christmas Eve almost exactly 500 years ago. Uh, These few verses describe the two appearings of Jesus that I have just talked about. So on this final Sunday of Advent, as we look ahead to Christmas, the celebration of the birth of Jesus, uh, let's look at the appearing as it's described here in Titus chapter 2. Verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all the people. I find this to be a beautiful summary of Christmas. The birth of Jesus was the embodiment of the grace of God. To a world that's drowning in sin and darkness, God sent his son, the Savior. And that was exactly the birth announcement to the shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy to all the people. A Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now, uh, that announcement, nor this verse, uh, neither of those mean that all people are automatically saved, that he is the Savior of all automatically. No, Uh, this means that salvation is offered to all types of people. Uh, the word for people here, the Greek word is anthropos, which is the general term. It doesn't refer to, to men specifically, but, but it is a word that includes every ethnicity and nationality and language and age and life situation. By grace, God made salvation possible to all who believe. That's what First Timothy 4.10 says. There is no discrimination. The offer is universal. God is the savior of all kinds of people, not just the American, the Iranian, the the African, the Asian, but to every nationality and ethnicity who believes, not just to those whose lives are intact and crisis-free, but to those who have failed and crashed and burned. It's not just to uh, those who have abstained or, or those who are advantaged, but to those who are addicted and abused. If you believe, then he is your Savior too. That's this announcement. And what makes that possible? Grace. God giving what we did not deserve. That's what the first appearing is all about. Grace. That through faith in Jesus, God pardons, God accepts us, even though we don't deserve it. Now, there would be no need for this appearing of Jesus if we could find salvation anywhere else, in any other way. If we could be good enough to deserve God's mercy, His salvation, then we wouldn't need Jesus. But the very arrival of Jesus, the the very celebration of Christmas, is the declaration that we are all dead in sin, broken beyond repair, without hope in this world. But Christ has come and bringing grace greater than all our sin. Now, no one is saved who does not admit how desperately needy they are. No one, whether they are in poverty or in the presidency, whether they're in a pew or in the pub, no one is saved who does not turn from their sin and cling to Jesus alone. Now, I want to point out that word appeared in our text here, which uh, appears twice, that word in our text, uh, but here in verse 11, uh, the Greek word is epiphano, and In Greek literature, that's outside of the New Testament, in Greek literature, this word can function as a technical term to describe a hero breaking into a helpless situation to rescue someone from danger. And that's how it is referred to here. God sent the hero we desperately needed, his own perfect son. He sent him into our hopelessness, breaking into our condition to save us. Uh, He came in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And the Scripture says she gave birth to a son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, and grace appeared. The eternal Son of God limited himself in a way beyond imagining. Mary herself struggled to comprehend what God had done. It says she pondered all these things in her heart. And the Scripture says they named him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. That's the first appearing of grace. And if you have experienced that salvation by grace, then you are a new creation. You you have a new kind of life. And the very next verse here in Titus is directed at those who have received that first appearing of grace, who have been made new. Verse 12 says, training us, To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. My parents taught me many good things. Uh, They were great examples for me as well. One thing they never had to teach me was how to lie. I was a natural at lying. And once I learned that lying, what lying was, and that lying was wrong, I told better lies. But after believing the gospel and putting my trust in Christ alone, that began a growing process in my life where I realized to put away lying and to put on the truth, and the lies became less and less. And when I did lie, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. I confessed my sin to God and received forgiveness. When I became a dad, I did not have to teach either of my daughters to lie. They were prodigies. But as they grew to trust Jesus and so thankful that they both put their faith in Christ and and continued to live for him, they changed as well. That's the kind of training that's talked about here in verse 12. Uh, the word training, Paideo in the Greek, refers to the instruction you give a child, to the teaching that you give a child. And so for those of us who have become God's own children by grace, through faith in Jesus, you're now in a training program. If your faith is in Christ, your life now is a training program program god is teaching you what's he teaching you he's teaching you to renounce some things that is to say no to some things and to say yes to other things what's he teaching you to say no to well ungodliness what's that Ungodliness is behavior that betrays god's will god's best so now you are trained you're being trained to refuse to do things that are not consistent with what god wants whether it's lies, lust, or larceny, whatever it is, uh, uh, God is training you. And and what else does he train you to do? He he trains you to say no to worldly passions. That is impulses and cravings and desires that are out of line with God's grace. And do we have those cravings and desires? Yes, but we're being trained. We're in the process. Now, this is not a recipe for salvation. You can renounce, you can say, No to ungodliness and worldly passions, all you want. That will never save you. Only trust in Christ alone will save you. Only the blood of Jesus will wash away sin. You can't get to God this way. But here is what happens to a life of someone who has received the grace that has appeared. You are being trained to become more like Jesus. So in spite of the temptations that you face in daily life and I face and the challenges, uh, you are, God is training you to grow in self-control, to become more like Jesus. And the grace of God made all that possible. And when you fail and fall, as I fail and fall, God's grace remains and you cry out to him for forgiveness and to restore your joy and the fellowship that you have with him. And so the first appearing of Jesus is about what? tell me grace the first appearing is about grace and the majority of our Christmas carols and Christmas songs I noticed they focus on great themes of peace and joy and love and light all good stuff but I was wondering how many of our Christmas carols focus on grace so I went through our hymnal, and there are 51, by my count, 51 songs that are related to the birth of Jesus in that hymnal, which has been a popular hymnal for some 30 years. It contains many old songs and newer songs as well, 51 of them. By my count, only five mention grace. I was surprised by that, only five. Well, here are the ones, and I, I could be off by one or two or whatever, but uh, here, here they are. Oh, thou joyful, oh, thou wonderful, grace-revealing Christmastide. That's one of them. I don't know what Christmastide is. But I don't know. But. The Word made flesh has dwelt among us, full of grace and full of truth. Or this one. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness. Or this one. How wonderful that God's own Son should so Himself abase. He thrust the mighty from their throne and gave the lowly grace. Or, silent night, holy night, Son of God, loves pure light, radiant beams from Thy holy face, with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord, at Thy birth. That's what the first appearing is about, the grace of of God, making salvation possible. So what about the next? Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So here's the second appearing in our passage. Epiphano, again, this revealing, appearing. The hero is coming back. Uh, he, he has not simply invited us to a, a banquet of grace and made that possible. No, he, he will return to settle the bill. This is not dine and dash. This is dwell and die and rise and return. That's what Jesus did. And so for all of those who have been saved by grace through the first appearing of Jesus, we are in training and we are waiting. We're waiting for his return. And our church teaching positions, our doctrine we list this under end time events. And, and it says this, We believe in the personal imminent coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the air to receive to himself all those dead or alive who belong to him. That this is the blessed hope for which we should be constantly looking. So, so we incorporate this passage into our doctrinal statement, saying we are awaiting, we're looking for that second advent, the blessed hope, the return of Jesus. And Jesus is our only hope. There's no hope unless he returns for us to complete the salvation which began on the first Christmas. In uh, Dickens' wonderful story, A Christmas Carol, uh, Bob Cratchit expresses sadness over Mr. Marley's imminent death. And Ebenezer Scrooge says to him, We've all got to die, Cratchit. And that's true. That's true. That's um, true. We're all in the process of dying. You know, I've noticed when I, when I get together with guys around my own age. Uh, sometimes we get talking about the stuff that we used to be able to do we can't do anymore. And the list is very long. I, I used to be able to, to run this fast or jump this high or lift this much. Can't do it anymore. And when I talk to some guys that maybe, maybe are a little older than me, then, then they start talking about hip replacements and knee replacements and shoulder replacements. Because we've all got to die, Cratchit. That, that's, that's what's happening. Once our bodies reach full development, they go into decline. Maybe you say, well, I'm not there yet. You'll be there. They they weaken and they wrinkle and they deteriorate. And the Bible has a term for this. It calls it the bondage to decay. Isn't that? Merry Christmas. And it says that all of creation is subjected to this frustration. All of creation is frustrated by our bondage to decay. But the good news is that Jesus is coming again. And so all of creation is going to be released. It's going to be liberated from this bondage to decay, including those who accepted him the first time. And when he returns, he came the first time in grace. The second time he comes and appears in glory. As Romans 8 puts it, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, when I'm talking about the second appearing, the second advent, I'm actually conflating uh, all kinds of end times events. I'm conflating rapture and second coming and even the eternal state. Just as I would conflate the first advent with, with the birth and the life and the death, burial, and resurrection, I conflate all that into one. So there, I would conflate e- eternal things into that second advent. But that second appearing, the second appearing is about what? Glory. It's about Glory. And this is what we look ahead to. When when death's dark shadows are put to flight and death's tears and pain will end, the glory that will be revealed. Now this glorious appearing of Jesus will have two very different results or reactions. For, For some, it will be tremendous joy. And for others, it will be terrifying judgment. Tremendous joy, terrifying judgment. So to those who did not receive Christ in his first appearing, he will come as judge. And his glorious appearing will be a dreadful thing to them. And at the end of days, the Bible says, they'll call on the mountains to fall on us, hide us from the wrath of this one on the throne. It says that every eye will see him, and they will wail as they recognize this this risen Jesus who's returned bringing righteous judgment. And I fail to preach the gospel to you if you do not hear... You must be born again. You must be. See, the good news of great joy, which is for all the people, must be received. It must be embraced. It must be believed. You must respond. A Christmas that remains the celebration of a baby in a manger will never save you. And so for some in that day, that second appearing will be terrifying judgment. But for those who have received him, that that glorious appearing brings great Joy. Tremendous joy. Why? Well, here's just some reasons why. When He appears, we shall be like Him, for we'll see Him as He is, 1 John 3, 2. When He appears, we'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away, 1 Peter 5, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory, Colossians 3, 4. So that day of glory, death, disease, Decay, gone forever, only glory remains. So 500 years ago, here's what Luther said about this in his Christmas sermon. How can death and the day of judgment terrify the heart that receives Christ? Who shall injure such a one when the great God and Savior Jesus Christ stands by with all his glory, greatness, majesty, and might? He who gave himself for us, he and no other will control that day. And what have you to fear from sin when the judge himself has taken it away by his sacrifice? Who will accuse you? Who may judge the judge? His power outweighs that of all the world. What can terrify when he has given himself for you? Beautiful words. And so I would just encourage you today with this, that every believer should long for Jesus' appearing. Every one of us should long for his appearing. See, I want to awaken you a longing, not for Christmas, but for Christ. Now just briefly to consider what is in our passage, let me give you three reasons why you should long for Jesus appearing. First, because it's a blessed event. That's what verse 13 reminds us. A blessed hope is the opposite of a cursed hope. So the first reason to eagerly wait for this great day is that it will mean blessing and not cursing. As Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's only blessing if you are in Christ. As awesome as the coming of Christ will be, there will be no curse for those who believe. And this verse tells us, verse 13 tells us, it refers to Jesus as our great God and Savior. Savior, not merely judge. The author and finisher of our salvation is on the way, and we should long for his appearing because we can confidently expect salvation and not wrath. Second reason, because it's a visible event. Long for his appearing because it's a visible event. You know, people have always wanted to see Jesus. The shepherds left their sheep in the fields to go see the baby who is Christ the Lord. The wise man traveled far to see the one born king of the Jews. Zacchaeus climbed a sycamore tree so he could get above the crowd so he could see this Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, people thronged. They crowded around to see him. The Apostle Paul wrote, now we just see a poor reflection, but then we will see face to face. John writes of the great hope of actually seeing Jesus, and he says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I want to see Jesus. Not just hear a story about him, a selfie or a text from him. I want to see him face to face. That's the promise. It's a visible appearing. I want to see the lips of Jesus move on that day when he graciously says, well done, enter into the joy of the Lord. Third reason. Because it's a glorious event. I should long for this because it's a glorious event. Uh, Just to remind you, John, the apostle, was given a glimpse of the future, and he tried to describe this in human terms in Revelation chapter 1. Here's what he says. I saw one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool. His eyes like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining its all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. It's a glorious event. And so these are the appearing Jesus. First grace and then glory. Nine years ago, I did something I'd never done before and have not yet done since. And that is, I did not attend any of the Christmas services at the church I was the pastor of. That year, Christmas was on a Sunday. Our church was having somewhere between Christmas Eve and Sunday morning, we were having eight or nine services. I'm the main preacher there, and I wasn't there. Now I had permission. How did I escape that? I left several days before Christmas because our oldest daughter was due to give birth to our first grandchild. And she lived in Cincinnati. So I left all my responsibilities behind in the capable hands of others and went to Cincinnati. When I arrived, I mean, it was an odd thing for me. I hadn't seen her in months to see my my daughter so expectant. And after a few hours there, she said, Dad, stop looking at me as if I'm going to explode. But, but I had such little time there. I would taken uh, a little more than a week off, and I had to get back uh, right after New Year's. But we went to Christmas Eve services at their church. And, and for once, I just worshiped. I didn't have to do anything. Uh, we went home and had a nice evening together the next day, Christmas Day. We, we opened up our, our presents and we celebrated together. It was a great time. You know, I keep looking at my daughter. When's this going to happen? Each night that week, we, uh, after dinner, we, we would play games together as a family. It was a, it was a great time. And, and it, After a few days, I'm wondering, you know, is this ever going to happen? New Year's Eve, we Celebrated that together, and I had to leave. It's like I, hmm. New Year's Day; we're all together and and uh, into that night, and I had to leave the next day. But then the wee hours of the morning on January second, son-in-law woke us up, said, "Gotta go to the hospital." So eventually. I got to the hospital and sat in the waiting room with, with my son-in-law's parents, wonderful people, and our other daughter, as my wife got to be where all the action was. But the morning dragged on, and I was like, I have to leave. Am I going to be able to see my grandchild? It kept delaying and delaying. Finally, late in the afternoon, the announcement was made. You have a grandson. And then there was more delay. And they finally led us into the room. And there, my my son-in-law and my daughter, and she's holding our grandson. And they hand him to me. And she said, Dad, his name is John. We've named him after you. Now, they don't call him that. His name is John Oliver uh, Shepard, and they call him Oliver. Now, he signs all the school papers, John Oliver. I give him extra money for that. And then I had to rush away and drive back to my responsibilities. I realized that the waiting for that child changed everything. I mean, just the anticipation of that. I, mean, I put my responsibilities to the side. It changed my perspective. It changed my relationships. We already shared a son-in-law with these wonderful people, and now we share each our first grandchild. That changed relationships. Changed our schedule. Other things went on the back burner. And I just want to remind you that so should our focus on the appearing of Jesus change everything. Today we celebrate the first appearing of Jesus. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king, but let us never stop longing for his second appearing. Paul says there's a reward for that. There's a reward, it's called the crown of righteousness that will be awarded on that day to all who have longed for His appearing. So would you keep your eyes not on the baby Jesus, but on the returning Jesus and, and in such a way that it will change your perspective and your priorities and your attitudes and your relationships. Because the one who appeared in grace will appear again in glory. Here's a chorus. I invite you to stand and sing with me, if you know it, to a tune that's somewhat familiar for Christmas, but these words are focused as much on the second coming, and if you can join me, please do so. Oh, come, Messiah, come again, and rid the world of death and sin. Return, Thou risen Savior and King, that heaven and earth at last may sing. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to Thee, O Receive this benediction. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Amen. Go in peace.